Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. In the dappled light of an Athenian morning some two and a half thousand years ago, a story was told, one that would weave itself into the very fabric of our understanding of the cosmos. The storyteller wasn't a poet or priest, but a philosopher, a new kind of creator whose task lay somewhere between those of the other two. Today we're diving into the platonic deep end by tackling this story, the Timaeus a text that stands not merely as a monolith of philosophical thought, but also, and more importantly, I think, as a masterpiece of the speculative imagination. In this dialogue, Plato gives us a creation story as metaphysical as it is cosmic, as biological as it is ethical, even political. On the surface, the story resembles the mythological narratives that came before it, but there's a difference. Whereas the old theogonists like Hesiod and the Orphics spun tales of divine dynasties vying for dominance over the monstrous powers of the primordial world, Plato subjects his creator god, the demiurge or craftsman, to laws, transcendent laws, which, while the human intellect can discern them unaided, are as binding for the gods as they are for us. Now there's no question that in many of its parts, and there are many parts, The Timaeus will strike the typical modern mind as an absolutely bonkers text. The idea that the universe is a living organism, of which the human body is an imperfect reflection put together by fumbling godlings, will be enough for most educated moderns to dismiss it offhand. Never mind that the dialogue begins with an account of the prehistoric Athenian's victory against the Atlantean armada just days before the fabled continent of Atlantis sank beneath the waves. But as we discovered in our conversation, even the wildest speculations in Plato's phantasmagoric creation myth hold a kind of truth. To quote Werner Herzog, it isn't the truth of accountants, but ecstatic truth, a truth that is inseparable from the act of creation that brings it to light. The Timaeus does not yield its secrets easily. It demands a reader who is willing to engage with its complexities and confront the grand architecture of its design. Willingness, however, is all it takes. Plato didn't write for the academic in us, but for the child, the child that still has the courage to abide in unknowing and remain wrapped in wonder. Given the importance Plato gave to -to face-to-face dialogue, it was only right that Phil and I wait until we were in the same room to tackle this text. The episode was recorded in Phil's living room in Bloomington, Indiana the day after our live show on David Cronenberg's Videodrome at IU Cinema, and two days after I had the honor of participating in Phil's doctoral seminar on music and the esoteric, along with our assistant Meredith. The seminar was about the Timaeus. Well, we hope you enjoy the result. Before we get to it, though, we owe a big thanks to all the members of the Weird Studies Patreon, without whom that trip to Bloomington could not have happened. If you're interested in supporting our show, 
we invite you to go to www.patreon.com forward slash weird studies to have a look at our tiers of support. Okay, without further ado, let us set sail with Plato as our skipper, steering us into the metaphysical mists of the Timaeus. On with the show. Maybe we could start just with Socrates opening gambit. One, two, three. Where's number four, Timaeus? The four of you were my guests yesterday, and today I'm to be yours. That's the first line in the Timaeus where Socrates is addressing his guests, and his guests are Timaeus and Critias, and I think that's it. Oh, there's one more. There's one more? Uh, Hermocrates, I think. Okay, so Socrates is not counting himself, uh, but although the line is immediately explained, one, two, three, where's the fourth, is like he's talking about people, there was going to be a fourth guy, but he didn't come. Nevertheless, in Timaeus, one might reasonably feel that nothing is there by accident, and inasmuch as that's not much of a rhetorical gambit, there's nothing especially scintillating about that device, which is instantly dropped, it stands out as a little bit of a rift. On right? a, yeah. On a reread of Timaeus, you immediately notice that the dialogue starts with counting, counting natural numbers. One, two, three, where's four? It seems weirdly conspicuous, right? Considering yep. the role that the number plays in this dialogue. And Earl Fontenelle who I keep wanting to call Earl Camembert after the boneheaded newscaster in the SCTV show, just because the names are kind of similar. There is nothing boneheaded about Earl Fontenelle. No, Fontenel. quite the contrary, I'd say. Yeah, his podcast, The Secret History of Western Esotericism, is one of the best things on the internet. Agreed. But in any event, he and his discussions of Timaeus feels that this is like a classic esoteric move where yeah. you're baiting the hook with a mystery, hmm. that one, two, three, four does not, in fact, refer to dinner guests, but refers to something else. And what that thing may be, we might offer some conjectures in the course of our conversation, or maybe we'll just drop it, as Plato himself does. Yeah. <laughs> with a few things in this dialogue, as we'll discover, a few things he kind of drops these. He has these mic drop moments, but he, he like where he just suddenly creates this new concept and then moves on and never comes comes back to it, thereby perplexing generations of philosophers succeeding him, right? Yeah, like the errant cause. Right. Which is like, we're the kinds of guys who are going to be like, errant cause? What's that you say? Yeah. You know, like my ears are going to prick up at that. But he mentions it once and then he doesn't return to it, leaving us to ask, well, what were you on about? And I'm mentioning all of this simply to say something about Timaeus that I found myself enjoying very much on this reread of it is, you know... My first read of it, I don't think I absorbed very much, and I don't know if I quite knew how to read it. Some texts, very original texts, are original partly for what they say, but also for the manner in which they demand to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Or not demand exactly, but like there's a way of approaching them from which point of view, uh, you know, what they have to offer yeah. becomes available. 
And so like you have to find a way to read it. And one thing that I did on this read of Timaeus that allowed it to open up to me a little bit was to treat it as a piece of wild speculative fiction. Yeah. I found myself asking myself, self, what would JF do? <laughs> well, what JF would do would be to turn this into some kind of role-playing game adventure shit. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read this not as if this is like, you know, a cornerstone of Western philosophy, which will obligate me to understand certain facts and be able to make certain arguments or perhaps defeat other arguments. No, I want to enter the imaginative space of this text. It's a little world that he's built, I'm building quite literally, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things about expressive text, works of art, and we've talked about this from the beginning, are rifts. Right. rifts that open up, you know, work of a logical positivist. If there's a rift, then you better close that. That's just good technique. Yeah. But for the kind of writing this is, a rift exists to do philosophical work. And so maybe that's a place to start. Yeah, I, I heartily agree. I mean, he even tells us this in this dialogue when he repeats on numerous occasions uh, he has the characters repeat that what's going on here is not a kind of factual account of the creation of the world, because Timaeus is first and foremost a text on the creation of the universe. But what's going on in this dialogue is more like what is translated here by uh, Donald Zale as a likely story. So the goal isn't to figure out how the universe was created, but to come up with a likely story about how such a universe as ours might have been created. Mm. And so the text is operating, I think, on the plane of the possible rather than the actual. It's dealing in, quite literally in speculation about what's possible, about what may be the case. But it's also by virtue of its success at unfolding a rational, and I don't mean rational as most, a lot of our listeners would hear rational meaning boring. I mean, a <laughs> rational meaning consistent account of how a universe arises. He's proving that a human mind can consistently describe the creation of something as mysterious and grandiose as our universe. And I think that that's where the magic of the dialogue resides. And it's, it's, it's speculative, i.e. aesthetic achievement rather than its factual achievement, because of course, you know, nostrils don't work the way that they're described <laughs> as working in this. There's all kinds of anatomical, astronomical. I mean, it's all from a scientific, a modern scientific point of view, it's all wrong. But from a speculative point of view, it's perfectly right, I think. And we'll get into, yeah, Phil has a lot to say about this too, about why that is. I just want to get back to the opening sentence, one, two, three, where's number four? Just to place people in, in the corpus of Plato's work. The Timaeus is a dialogue which takes place the day after the dialogue that uh, constitutes the Republic, the most famous work by Plato. So uh, Socrates and his buddies in the Timaeus have just finished building this ideal society the day before, and now they're getting back together to continue their dialogue. And as usual, there's a very improvisational quality to the dialogue. There's no indication at the beginning of this text that we're going to be talking about the creation of the world. In fact, we're still talking about the perfect polity, the perfect polis, the perfect political system. 
but things naturally lead the interlocutors to then it was like, oh, well, we if we were going to talk more about politics, we first have to know how this universe came about. And that's how they end up talking about the creation of the universe. And so when Socrates is counting one, two, three, where's number four, he's counting his interlocutors and there's one person who couldn't make it. And so uh, it's a smaller, it's a subset of the group that not wrote, but spoke the Republic. It's a small subset of that group that will now be dealing with uh, the themes of this dialogue. So it's one of the things I've always loved about Plato is that he's shamelessly fictional in his operations. His dialogues are written like stories. They have a kind of narrative arc. They follow one another. And to me, this is such an important cue as to what Plato's doing. Because the fact that Plato is fabulating his dialogues, he's writing his dialogues in a fictional frame, means that I think it it should cue us, it should model for us how these texts are to be approached, precisely not as statements of fact, but more as experiments in thought, right? Mm. Not thought experiments in the modern sense, but experiments in thinking, whose goal is probably not achieving the right thought or the correct thought, but whose goal is more like something like spiritual enlightenment, right? So um, yes, just as a way of kind of contextualizing this text, I wanted to mention that. So why don't we give at least a rough inventory of the contents of this rather long piece, and Timaeus has got to be one of the longest of the of the dialogues. The I laws mean, is the longest. Oh, yeah. Um, it's quite, quite long. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it's a long one, though. Yeah, yeah it's, it's in the longer, yeah. We go through some things. Yeah, it, a lot happens, a lot yeah. of moves. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what happens at the beginning is some throat clearing and chit-chat, and a lot of it is uh, just recapitulation of the Republic. Do you remember what we were saying yesterday? Blah, blah, blah. And then... We start getting into an account of Atlantis, which is going yeah. to be rejoined in Critias, the subsequent dialogue. For now, we just kind of get a quick overview. And this is, of course, an idea that has stuck around, and especially in a lot of New Age contexts. You hear the word Atlantis, uh, you know, can crystal powers be far behind yeah. when someone starts talking Atlantis? And this is, and a lot of people are probably surprised to realize that such a, a chestnut of new age thinking and feeling is uh, actually comes from Plato. Um, I find that fascinating. That whole bit at the beginning about history and the amnesia of the Greeks, right? Let's, let's sit down on that a yeah. little bit because it really, it's extrinsic perhaps to the main development of this piece, but at the same time, it's very interesting. Actually, the stuff about Atlantis as such is brief enough that it's not it's not as interesting to me as that sort of thinking about like the depths of time. So what happens in the, the dialogue is that one of their number, Critias, starts talking about something that his ancestor Solon one of the sages and a deeply revered of Athens figure yeah. of Athenian society. And what Critias says is that, well, my, you know, grandfather Solon knew this story and he had it from Egyptian priests. So like there's this place in Egypt where the people there think that they're like a sister city of Athens, that right. we are related in some manner. And so Solon apparently went there and talked to these Egyptian priests and the priests tell him, 
you Greeks are children, right. not meaning that in an insulting way, but in the sense of like in the life of a human being, like yeah. you were just in the, the very early stage of life. You have no memory of anything very long ago, but we Egyptians, we've been around for a long time. And actually this is, this is an interesting thing about esotericism generally is how consistently Egypt is the locus of all mysteries. Yeah. It's the place mysteries come from, the deepest wisdom, the endless deep abysses of time are like very much bound up in the imagination of ancient Egypt. And this was true in fifth century Athens, as it still is for like the new age and magical currents Graham of Hancock. our own time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or, you know, Crowley insisting that the tarot is not, in fact, a northern Italian invention of the high Middle Ages, but rather the ancient book of Thoth, a picture book that has been handed down by countless generations of adepti from ancient Egypt. And so Egypt, even in this dialogue, is assuming a familiar role as the place of unfathomably ancient mysteries. Maybe there's something to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I love that bit. Because what the Egyptians tell Solon is, first of all, that unbeknownst to the Athenians, the world undergoes periodic disasters, right? The word is quite literal, disaster, like bad star, um, that when the wandering stars, the planets get too close to the earth, sometimes they set the whole earth ablaze and basically destroy civilization and resets civilization to zero so that humans have to start again from the beginning. Sometimes it's not the wandering stars that burn the earth, but rather the waters rise and drown the earth. So you've got stories like the flood. Right. Um, the Egyptians, however, specifically the Egyptians of this area called Sais, but probably I think we're meant to understand that Egypt, the Nile culture, is spared these disasters because they are placed at the perfect spot for surviving these periodic disasters. And so their memory goes way back. They have, they have a memory of ancient, ancient history that the Athenians don't even know exists. And it's in this ancient historical frame. It's in this ancient history that the Egyptians and Athenians are linked for Plato, like yeah. where somehow that they have a shared history, but the Athenians have no memory of this. So then uh, the priests tell Solon, you don't know how special you Athenians are. You don't know that you saved the world from this horrible invasion, from this tyrannical <laughs> kingdom called Atlantis that was located you know, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, i.e. in the Atlantic Ocean. And this civilization was trying to conquer all the Mediterranean, and it was the Athenians who saved the day. But just right after this happened, you know, right after the Athenians vanquished the Atlanteans, there was a big earthquake, and one of these periodic disasters happened. And so uh, the Athenian fleet was sunk, and the, the entire continent of Atlantis sank beneath the waves. And therefore, that whole history was lost to everyone but the Egyptians. So... What's interesting is rhetorically what Plato is doing here, because what gets them going on this subject is that Socrates, you know, having listened and, and built the Republic with his friends, they, they have this model now of the perfect society. What he wants to do uh, at the beginning of the dialogue is to see this fictional 
or hypothetical society in action. He wants to see how such a polis would thrive, how it would deal with other polis. In other words, he wants to get into a kind of world-building game or civilization game. And um, it's at that point that the others say, well, wait, we have something better. The society we just designed actually existed back in the ancient world. Mm. We've learned this from the Egyptians. And guess what? That perfect society was Athens back in the day. And that's what the Egyptians <laughs> priests tell Solons, that Athens used to be modeled exactly like Plato thinks the society should be modeled. And we all know that Plato had a huge chip on his shoulder with the Athenian establishment because they had killed Socrates and he had big problems with it. So there's this weird political move or subversion he's doing through this storytelling here by mm. saying that Athens's real nature, its original nature was exactly the system that I'm describing in the Republic, which mm. I thought was kind of clever. This is a slight tangent, but okay. I love that style of finding knowledge. Put it this way. Among the tropes that are available to a storyteller are tropes that concern the manner of obtaining knowledge. And the idea of the knowledge that was lost to ages, like wiped away like chalk, wiped from a chalkboard by some natural disaster or by war or what have you, some calamity. And the idea of there being you know, hieratic orders somewhere that are custodians of these ideas, that there are traces of lost histories that become available either to Adepti or to Indiana Jones-like right. archaeologists or what have you. Love that shit. And <laughs> as, a, as a trope, it continues, like you mentioned Graham Hancock, like, that's kind of his thing. Like, regardless of what you think of the reasoning and, and evidence that he's using in his books. He's working in that form. Yeah. Wikipedia yeah. doesn't think much of Graham no. Hancock. The, the Wikipedia much, article doesn't think on much him, of us either. You know, I'm, I'm sure. Nothing, in <laughs> fact. The Wikipedia article on Graham Hancock is a masterpiece of minutely realized spite and vindictiveness. Yeah. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. And it reminds me a little bit, actually, of something in Videodrome, which we talked about last night. We did a live show last night yeah. on Videodrome. And one thing that I thought to talk about in our Videodrome show, but it just never came up, that it's another trope of like how you gain knowledge, which is like straying upon a signal that is not meant for you. Right like a kind of overhearing. That's kind of the Galileo way of gaining knowledge, like building a telescope that should not have existed, in other words, and seeing suddenly things about the stars yeah, actually, that no one was meant to see. Actually, yes. Yeah. So yeah. Cronenberg said in like this, uh, I think a documentary that I saw once, that back in the old days, before there was 24-hour TV, you know, at a certain point, you'd have that, you'd see the... National Remember anthem. That, the national anthem, and you see the Canadian flag waving and yeah. pictures of like fucking moose disporting themselves upon their native heath, yeah. that sort of thing. And then that's it. That's the end and the of logo. TV. Ooh, that was yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. Till tomorrow. Yeah. To, yeah. And then it would start up again at like six in the morning or something. And he was like, so, you know, the airwaves would quieten down. There's no broadcasting. He's like, and then if you were like really careful, you could kind of scan the airwaves and you would catch little pieces, bits and pieces of broadcast from like maybe Buffalo or Detroit or maybe 
places further away. Pirate radio stations are famous for using like massively boosted signals. So sometimes something from like Fort Worth you can catch in Ontario, but you'll get like old blips. You know, they're incomplete. Like, you know, yeah. if the atmospheric conditions change and suddenly you lose the signal. But he said there was a kind of a mystery and almost a threat to that, the sense of like these voices in the dark and you could kind of overhear them yeah you could stray into places that you weren't meant to be and in this case it's the radio receiver or the tv receiver as opposed to galileo's telescope but i like that i like that another example of that era was the mystery phone number you know there were these phone numbers that you could call which had behaved very bizarrely like you'd call this number and then there would be a voice saying something in some foreign language or a, a series of tones uh, I remember these numbers getting passed around and you're not gaining knowledge, but you're discovering something yeah, that's outside your ambit, something yeah. that you weren't meant to, to discover. Yeah. I'm sort of following this tangent a little bit, just because one of the things that should be pretty obvious to anybody who has spent time in esoterica is just like the almost inconceivable impact of Timaeus on... Right on Western esoteric traditions and exoteric traditions, just like it influenced everybody. It's the only piece of Plato's that uh, was transmitted to the Christian West before the big knowledge dump in the 15th century as Byzantine scholars fled westwards. Um, they started getting the a few. Constantinople. They got a few dialogues in the 13th, but it was very late in the Middle Ages. They yeah. started to get the Plato, yeah. And yeah. it was a partial translation into Latin, perhaps third century translation of Timaeus that skips the part about Atlantis and it skips the last bit too, all the stuff that comes after the receptacle, if right. memory serves. So the human body and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But so it's a partial translation, but even so, enormously influential on developing Christian theology. This is a hugely impactful piece of writing, but it is also hugely impactful in particularly the esoteric domain. And one of the things that I'm interested in doing at intervals in our conversation today is thinking about the ways that Timaeus makes esoteric moves. We've already talked about one, the one, two, three, four thing, which Earl Fontenelle feels strongly suggests that Plato is winking at us, that mm-hmm. there's some esoteric meaning there that he leaves to the reader to elucidate. But this is perhaps the unwritten doctrines of Plato that we're encountering here. Mm. That's a very esoteric move, right? A very esoteric move to put a secret in plain sight, in this case, in the very first sentence of your dialogue, where we register that there's a secret, we don't know what it is. And this idea of like our in in this whole thing is this sort of like transmission of knowledge through esoteric channels yeah forbidden knowledge forgotten knowledge yeah exactly recovered from the ancient so getting back to what i said at the beginning if we're thinking about this as a kind of work of imaginative writing thinking of it along the lines of speculative fiction one thing we would expect a piece of weird fiction speculative fiction or whatever to do is to set a mood well, this yeah. sets a mood. It does, indeed. It sets a mood. And I love that you brought up these two uh, modes of transmission or these two claims that uh, uh, someone who announces knowledge might make as to how they acquired the right to have this knowledge. Like, yes. what gives you the right to say that? Yeah. You know, who says you can... Well, one is, I heard this from ancient people who know what they're yeah. talking about. That's right. one way. Another way is to say... I discovered it. 
Yes. And I think the second part of the dialogue kind of models this other mode of acquiring knowledge. The, 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 like the meat of the yeah, Timaeus. Yeah, the yeah. creation of the universe where what's going on here, I mean, on a first read, you might think, well, he's engaging in a kind of like mythologizing. He's creating a myth about the creation of the world. He's talking about a demiurge, a creator god who created the universe, a good god, therefore he wanted to make a good world. And it's blasphemous for us to say otherwise than this is a wonderful universe. And he has all this kind of like stuff that you might expect to see in a religious text or mythological text. But there's something he's doing with myth here that's very new, I think, and very different. Not completely new, because Plato was not the first philosopher, but I think something that dis distinguishes this text as a philosophical text as opposed to, let's say, a theogony, uh, like the theogonies of Hesiod or the Orphics, for example, the stories about how the world was made that were transmitted to Plato and his contemporaries from the time of Homer, for example. It's very different. It's a new, they have a new way of thinking, and it's not based now on repeating narrative stories that were inherited. That's what's going on with the Atlantis thing. It's not about just, oh, what well, tradition has taught us that this is how the gods made the world. This is how Zeus made the world sure. we know. Now it's from this principle, I will create a likely story of how a universe such as ours might emerge. And so it's a very different operation, even though he's still using the language of myth. So we're at a weird interstice there, or like a, a kind of liminal state between the theogonies of a Hesiod and then finally like the mature philosophical speculations of like an Aristotle. Mm. Like in, we're in that zone in between. Maybe that's the sweet zone that all philosophers should aspire <laughs> to inhabit. But I just think that both types of knowledge are being modeled in this dialogue. That brings us to really the meat of this. So we can sort of go through this account, brief account of the Atlantis story. And then we move to some cosmogony. Yeah. It's sort of like, hey, Timaeus, you're the astronomer. You know about this stuff. Why don't you tell us? And so, and the, yeah, in that case, there's not any kind of story of like esoteric transmission, but just the assumption that this is the kind of thing that astronomers would yeah. know about. Yeah. He kind of says, he says, like, we don't know, but like based on the principles that I hold to be true, let me tell you how such a world as ours might have happened. And that's the cool new move. And so the rest of the dialogue is basically Timaeus's account of the creation of the universe. And that also means the creation of the human being, because the yep. human being is absolutely central. So in other words, you can't do astronomy, according to Plato, without also doing anatomy. They're the one science in a certain sense. They unfold from the same principles. So the anatomy of the human being, like what the liver does and what the intestines do, has everything to do with the fixed stars and the wandering absolutely. planets. Everything's connected. And that brings us to another point about how this ends up being an extremely important text in esoteric traditions because one of the uh, pretty much invariant features of esotericism is a kind of that uh, emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus line that you've probably all heard as above so below the idea that the human being is a microcosm of a macrocosm and indeed there's a program embedded in that we might say that there's a kind of a normative statement the human microcosm ought to be like the macrocosm mm, yeah um he's saying both in this that yes yeah yeah exactly yeah 
on a first read, you might think, well, this is kind of a clumsy dialogue. As we start talking about the Republic, then we go on and talk about Atlantis. And all of a sudden, we're talking about the creation of the universe. And then it just ends there. But at the end, we do come back to politics. We do come back to ethics. Because at the end, it's all about how we as fallen mortals must realign ourselves with the macrocosm. So we come back to an ethical place. Um, So it, it, it does form a full circle in a peculiar way. Mm. Um, one word about Timaeus before we get into the meat of it is that uh, I think it's important to note that Timaeus is said to come from Southern Italy. So this to someone of Plato's time would have signaled, oh, Timaeus is a follower of Pythagoras. Yeah. He's a Pythagorean. And the Pythagoreans, of course, were known at the time as being in possession of mystical principles of the most important type. I think Plato is claiming uh, some of that legacy uh, in this text. He's basically saying, well, what I'm doing here is some Pythagorean work, even though he, it's unclear what his connection to the Pythagoreans was. So uh, the dialogues are more than just conduits for transmitting philosophical ideas. Absolutely. They're dramatizations and who's speaking matters, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially if you're trying to figure out what does Plato think as opposed to what Socrates thinks or what Timaeus thinks. You have to look at who these characters are and where they come from. Yeah, the narrative is not just a disposable convenience to make dry material more palatable. No. Um, There is a a dramatic order in the ideas. And indeed, it's as if, like, there's a story, like, as you say, it matters who's speaking. Even though, like, the main part of Timaeus, it's just Timaeus talking on for page after page after page. Not really a dialogue. No. Once you get past the opening part. Even so, there's a sort of sense of like, okay, these are people who are doing something. They're having a conversation, and through their conversation, their minds move through changes and stages so that they're different at the end of the dialogue than they are at the beginning. And that, again, if we're thinking of a kind of microcosm, macrocosm sort of correspondence, there's a correspondence in the reader that this is perhaps intended to trigger which is like, you too have something to do. Yeah. There's a path you need to take. You know, these are not just ideas that have been like stenciled from someone's mind onto the page and now you read them and now they're stenciled onto your mind and you can go take a philosophy exam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. No. It's um, Pierre Ado, the French thinker who started his career as a Plotinus scholar. He, I think, is a person who first really twigged to something important about Plotinus, famously obscure philosopher, that a lot of the obscurities have to do with the fact that he's not trying to draw like an incredibly intricate figure for you just to hold in your mind as a static object. He's asking you to follow him step by step through the picturing of this very complex object of thought. In other words, it's almost like the steps of a dance. Like if you see dance notation with the little feet, yeah. and like telling you where to put your feet and so on. One, two, three, and see the little outlines of feet. It's almost a little bit like that. In other words, these things are something like, I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly, but almost sort of like entries in like a liturgical handbook or a grimoire. It looks like philosophy in the sense we've come to understand what philosophy is, but it's also like a guide to action 
and an action that takes its place as part of a practice. Philosophy not as a collection of texts and things. This was Ado's entire point. Not just a collection of things. The things we have, like the complete dialogues of Plato, those are objects, but those are almost like the footprints left by somebody's treading upon the path. Those yeah. are the traces of someone's practice left behind for us to retrace in our own practice and thereby to come to wisdom. To come to, to be changed by it. By yes. Them. So in a sense, I mean, it wouldn't be completely off to describe Timaeus as maybe something like the Videodrome signal in that... The content is important, of course, but the idea is that the dialogue as a whole is trying to change you, is inviting you to change. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's a moment in the seventh letter, I think I've brought this up on the show before, in the seventh letter of Plato, where Plato is describing to his correspondent what is going on when he's doing dialogue, when he's talking to his disciples or students. He says, the words are unimportant. What matters is that moment beyond the words. In other words, not one, two, three, but the mysterious four, you know, where's four? And that enlightenment, that moment of enlightenment transcends language. And so it's not just about conveying clear and distinct ideas. It's about using language and using thought to provoke a transformation, Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of gnosis, I think. I think that's not, I don't think that's stretching it with what Plato's doing. So sometimes that might involve engaging in thought experiments that have no truth value. It might simply be for the speculative promise or affordance of a particular idea that you pursue this path. Because the transformation is not just about accepting that Plato is right. The transformation is about attaining something that's beyond the discursive. So that's beyond language. So nobody can say the truth. It's something you experience. And philosophy, according to Pierre Hadot anyways, philosophy was a tool, a practice to achieve this kind of gnosis. Yep. So if you read it that way, um, and I think in modern parlance or in a, in a modern register, I think you framed it perfectly at the beginning. I think the best way to read these texts, according to me, and I think you agree, is to read them like they're fiction. Why do we read fiction? We read fiction to be, well, we might read fiction to be entertained. Or to pass the time. To pass yeah. the time. But really, is that why you read Moby Dick? Why not read Dan Brown, if that's what you want? You read Moby Dick, or you read Macbeth, or you read um, Finnegan's Wake, to be changed, to me, it's like mm-hmm. to be changed. And you're not changed because you're getting new facts. There's yes. not a single fact in these texts. You're getting changed by the experience, the aesthetic and imaginal experience of this language. So reading it that way makes, to me, is very interesting. I don't know. And it makes it accessible. Like I think it's easy to be intimidated, but I mean, it's a difficult piece of writing to really grasp to really wrap your head around it, I think would take many readings. And uh, perhaps some people would say you never really truly wrap your head around it, that it's too sublime, immense and complex a, a work ever to be truly finally exhausted by anybody's intellect. I would find that a plausible notion. Yeah. Um, but that's but, precisely why everybody should read it. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is that it's like, I remember something you said about um, Thousand Plateaus, which is a very difficult book to read, mm-hmm. Deleuze and Guattari, that when they publish it, a lot of the, I think maybe Deleuze said that the people who really enjoyed it were not professional philosophers, but like oh, origamists. That was, or? No, that was about his book uh, on Leibniz. He wrote a okay. book on Leibniz called The Fold. And he said that the people, who, his favorite letters that he got after publishing The Fold were letters from surfers and origamists. 
because they know what a fold is. <laughs> and I love the idea. It's like, you know, some guy is a surfer and is, doesn't have a degree in philosophy or maybe has never read philosophy. And perhaps there's a lot in that book on Leibniz that would escape him. But like in, something in there, but yeah. there's something in there that he can vibe with and get something out of. And I think that like when you approach Plato, not like you're studying for some fucking exam, but this is this crazy world that unfolds and I want to yeah. inhabit it imaginatively. Yeah, you're not going to get everything, but who the fuck cares? Like yeah. inhabit the world. I dig, love this. Dig the vibes. I saw this firsthand today because today, uh, as I will have announced in the introduction, we are sitting in the same room. Today I attended a course that, um, what do you call it, a lecture? Yeah, it was yeah. a lecture of a, well, it wasn't a lecture because it's kind of seminar-ish. No, it was but, a seminar, yeah. yeah. So a uh, graduate seminar on Wagner that um, Phil is giving, uh, leading, doing? Inflicting. Inflicting upon a group of particularly brilliant students. Yeah, really, really So I really got to just sit group. there and listen. And, uh, you know, there were several moments where a student came up with an insight that, I'm not saying these students don't know anything about Wagner, yeah. but they are new to it compared yeah. to you. And yet they were getting insights that you hadn't thought of. Absolutely. You're creating the space where those those discoveries, first of all, they feel comfortable communicating them. Mm -hmm. They don't feel inadequate. They don't feel like they don't have enough knowledge to comment on the text. And so you're doing exactly what Plato's doing. Mm -hmm. Like you're basically creating a space where people can experience something for themselves and that's how they change. That's how they'll come to love Wagner. And it's not loving Wagner because of all of his prodigious achievements in music notwithstanding it's yeah. about something that's beyond any particular part of his work it's just the transformative potential of what he created and that's not something that is uh even necessarily like intellectual at all it's a felt thing yeah and you came out of that dig in the Wagner scene that we were yeah, working on, which I was is starting from, to get it. <laughs> and, and even though like you're jumping in and the third act of Siegfried, and that's already like more than halfway through the whole ring cycle. And yeah. like, it's very decontextualized, but there's still something there that communicates on a really gut level. That's uh, so archetypal that I could kind of situate myself in the cycle. Uh, but at the same time, it was about watching the interaction between you and the students. That was so mm. cool. Well, thank um, you. And, and, seeing how, I don't want to say charitable, you have a charitable attitude, but how um, excited you were about their thoughts. Well, so yeah. this is an awesome class. Yeah. I, I, I hope I hope at least one or two of them might hear these words because uh, that... Uh, is a couple of them are Weird Studies listeners, I learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, hey guys, <laughs> thanks for listening. Anyway, so let's get yeah. back to talking about the actual content now that we're starting the um, kind of... The meat of it. Yeah, yeah. the actual world building, the literal yeah. world building. Exactly. Yeah. How many worlds are we talking about here? 
one world, one universe. He mm-hmm. makes it very clear that there's only one universe because he does play with the idea there might be many universes. But yeah. of course, within this universe, I know where you're going. There are a few worlds. One universe because the Demiurge, the creator, put everything in this universe. He took all of the chaos and organized it all and he didn't leave anything out. That means there's no parallel universes, sorry. <laughs> there's only one universe, but this universe has diamonds and all kinds of weird stuff in it. So don't worry, you can still get your sub pocket There's, pocket there's all kinds and, of pluralism in yeah, this world. Yeah. Um, but it's one world. It's one world. Why? Because in order for the universe to be a good universe, it had to be a living thing. In order to be a, an eternal living thing, it couldn't have any orifices or organs. It had to be closed. It had to sustain itself perfectly. Therefore, it had to be a sphere. Yeah. It doesn't eat anything. It doesn't make waste. Or if it does make waste, then that waste is like part of its nutrient. Like yeah. it's a perfectly closed Perpet- ze- sort of, I don't know. If Perpetual the, motion machine. Yeah, like, you know, like yeah. a zero point machine. Yeah, you know? except it's a being. Yeah, it has a <laughs> soul. And when you think about it, it has to be a being. Like if we're thinking in that correspondence logic as above, so below, the human being is a kind of microcosm, the macrocosm. If the human being has a soul. is a living being with a yeah. soul, then surely the macrocosm yes. is as well. Exactly. And it can't have anything outside of it. That means that the Demiurge had to take everything and put everything in it. We'll explain what that means in a bit in a second. He says, in other words, what he's saying there is that the reason we have a mouth and we have lungs and we have... Uh, you know, is because we're not complete. We're not complete in ourselves. And this is an idea that also uh, occurs in, in symposium when they talk about the human being at the beginning was just a perfect sphere. The human being is open onto the world because it, it, the human being is not complete. It, it needs to be completed by the world, it needs to eat, it needs to breathe, etc. But the universe is a perfect being, therefore it's a perfect sphere. And it's as a perfect sphere that it comes to approximate the perfection of the demiurge. I just want to linger on that idea of the demiurge. Though. Sure, I think it's yeah, important please do. Because this is a real innovation, right? Yep. This is the first account that looks like a kind of Judeo-Christian account of creation, right? Of course, Plato was neither a Jew nor a Christian, but what he's giving us here is a, a story of creation that really resembles the stories that uh, Jews and Christians will hold to be the case. And so it's very different from the other stories that circulated at the time. For example... Plato's disciple, Aristotle, he will argue that matter is eternal and therefore that the world was not created. But Plato, it it was very important for Plato to say, well, no, things are becoming, things that become had a cause, therefore the universe had to have a cause. Aristotle still argues that, but he puts the first cause kind of like outside of time such that the universe is eternal. And we're not talking about Aristotle. Um, So this is a kind of a weird innovation, this idea of the demiurge. And not only any demiurge, a good demiurge. So he's very close to giving us something like uh, Like God. Like a Christian creator God. Yeah, a creator God, yeah. Yeah, which is one reason that this was kind of like formatted in such a way that it could play with Christian theology. Why it matters that this, of all the dialogues was one that was transmitted to the Christian West at an early date. Yeah. Yeah, because it's conformable to Christian doctrine. And another thing that makes it liable for esoteric purposes is that because it's close, not the same certainly as that of an Abrahamic creator God, but close in dialogue with... 
you can create correspondences and you can kind of imagine that like perennial philosophy, this is being a, a very durable notion in yeah. esotericism that all of the apparent differences between true religions mm. are just that apparent differences that once you pare away local expressions of the truth, you arrive at the pure truth, the truth undiluted distilled and perfect. And that is this kind of eternal theology, a perennial philosophy that expresses itself in... Uh, the v Vedic literature. And yeah. The, yeah and, and, all the way down. And, and, yeah. and, and uh, in the Bible and Plato, etc. And so, you know, Timaeus gives lots of fodder for the making of correspondences and the sort of fitting of this cosmological view with Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. There is a difference, though, um, at least in Christian theology, and I believe also in Jewish accounts of creation, God creates the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, that's not quite true when you read Genesis, right? Because you have the spirit of God floating upon the water. So there's something yeah. else there, right? But, but it, that's interpreted theologically in different ways. But in the Timaeus, it's very clear that the Demiurge did not begin with nothing. The Demiurge, in fact, did not create matter. Well, I guess the Demiurge created matter by organizing these tiny, uh, what do you call them, corp corpuscles? Corpuscles? <laughs> How do you pronounce sure. that word? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Corpus. Cor 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 corpuscle? No, Corpus no, not, no, no, that's not it. Corpuscles. Corp corpuscles. Yeah, corpuscle. It, particles. Fuck. <laughs> it's like one of those words that when you start saying yeah, I know. it over and over again, it sounds so weird. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. So let's call them particles. There okay. were particles in a state of absolute chaos, in total disorder, existing in what he calls the receptacle. The Greek word is kora, one of those mysterious notions that he doesn't elaborate upon in their infinitely intriguing. Uh, so there was the demiurge and there was this kind of state of chaos, which he associates with, just as the demiurge is associated with the figure of the father in the traditional kind of dualistic um, symbology of, of Western esotericism. So he associates the potential, that chaotic potential with mother, the receptacle. Mm -hmm. So it's very close to the I Ching. The second hexagram, earth is often called the receiving yes, or the receptacle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what he does, uh, the Demiurge, is that he organizes this chaos. I love this one little rift in the text that I love because it's Meosuyan, where he says, the originary chaos, the state of chaos, had all these different particles and they never amounted to anything. They never combined to form anything except by chance. I love that because it means that in that original chaos, it was not impossible that for a fraction of a second, the particles randomly collided in such a way as to create a universe just as complete as ours. And then it just evaporated the next second. That's the type of universe the French philosopher Mayasu thinks we actually exist in. I don't believe that's the case, but I find it a very compelling and mm. fun idea. Mm. But no, according to Plato, there was purpose to the Demiurge's project. And so the Demiurge organized this chaos. Should we talk about the particles? Um, I find that pretty... Yeah, let's talk abstract. about the particles, but before we do, yeah. I, I want to establish a kind of groundwork, like within this one universe, Yeah. which by the way, he has an interesting argument. He was like, it has to be one. Yeah. Because it's like, if there was some other stuff in this universe, I mean, this goes back to this idea of soul. It's all the things in this universe that together, through their functioning together, make a soul. Right, right. And if there's other stuff then that would be part of the totality that makes right. the soul. Right, 
quite a simple argument, really. Yeah. And so, so you could say, well, okay, to someone who has like a multiple worlds theory, okay, yeah. well, what you're calling multiple worlds are all part of the one universe, right? There's one yeah. multiverse. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's There's like, what, some yeah. overarching logic or necessity that all of the parts serve and indeed must serve. And so the idea that there's some kind of nested pocket world that has nothing to do with all that other stuff that is just doing its own thing, it doesn't make any sense. It can't have anything outside of it because if there was something outside of it, it wouldn't be, first of all, it wouldn't be complete. It wouldn't be the totality. So it wouldn't be a universe. Mm -hmm. Everything needs to be in it and everything needs to be ordered within it. Yeah. Involved. Everything in, has a place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've had, we had the demiurge and at the beginning there was a demiurge, there's the receptacle and there's something else. There's the, uh, a model, something he's using as a guide to create the demiurge has, it's not clear where this other world exists. It's either in his mind or in some supernal realm. There's the realm of forms. Yeah. And so what the Demiurge is trying to do is to create a world that mimics, that replicates, that mirrors the perfection of the world, of the realm of forms, of the intelligible realm. And it's in that spirit of molding chaos so that it mirrors the image of the perfect order. Uh, that's the kind of framework in which mm -hmm. creation unfolds. And that becomes important because nothing goes quite right with the Demiurge as he tries to do this. There's a certain amount of data lost in transmission, I guess. Right. So we start off with the realm of forms and the Demiurge wants to make a copy of it. But the realm of forms is not perceptible because no. if it's perceptible, it's not eternal. It's created. Yeah, yeah it's it, created. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, there's actually very good logical reasons to agree with Plato here. Ask yourself, what in your experience is permanent, completely unmarked by the passage of time, not subject to sickness or decay, entropy or any kind of loss? Can you think of anything at all? No. If it belongs to this material world, it will decay. It'll turn into something else. The only kinds of things that don't have those kinds of qualities are things like, for instance, think of a letter, like the letter M. I can draw a letter M on paper. I can etch it in marble. I could have it engraved in the hardest substance known. I could make a, a diamond tablet and engrave the letter M in it for reasons better known to myself. <laughs> and yet, however strong and durable that is, it's impermanent like everything else. It yeah. belongs to the flux of things in time. In other words, to what we might call becoming. Yeah. True being, that which doesn't change, that's eternal, is not the letter M as marked on some medium, some material medium. It's the idea of the letter M. Yeah. I mean, an even better example probably would be any geometric shape, a circle. Like we've all heard, you'll never find an actual circle yeah. in the world. First of all, a circle has two dimensions and nothing in the world of becoming has just two dimensions. Yeah. And, but to say the circle doesn't exist is absurd no. for Plato. If you're seeing a circle, it's not that kind of no. eternal circle. The circle you, you see is an imperfect circle. Yes. The one you draw on the board, even with your compass, is yeah. an imperfect circle. But the circle that all of these examples of circles represent and it's the most intuitive thing in the world, that is an, a form for Plato. Yeah. And that is outside of time. Yes. It has no becoming. 28a in the Timaeus, he says, that which is has no becoming. 
Yes. That which becomes never is. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And people laugh at uh, Plato's idea of forms. But when you look at it in its rudiments, I think it's a perfectly valid idea. Certainly a lot of mathematicians believe it. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if you were a mathematician, if you didn't kind of have to believe it. Because with mathematics, you have these symbolic objects, mathematical objects that eerily, uncannily match things in the world. But the things in the world act like things in the world. They're perceptible, but they're also subject to contingency and decay and all of that stuff. Whereas the forms themselves just continue serenely in mm-hmm. their own world. But in mathematics, like the, what is it called? The unreasonable efficacy of mathematics. Right. There's this argument. It's like, it's actually kind of a mystery that math should work so well to describe the world that we're actually in. Yeah. That you can't help but deduce from that, that what's perceptible, what belongs to this realm of becoming that we're all a part of, is dependent upon this other world's that there is this kind of relationship between this world and a world of math yeah. that is exactly homologous to the relationship between the phenomenal world, the world of becoming, and the world of being in Plato. Yeah. And I think the mistake we make with Plato is that we imagine that he simply saw our world, and he, it's partially his fault, or Socrates is his fault, that our world is a pale reflection, uh, a, a, a bad copy of that world. And in fact, it's hard not to <laughs> come out of this dialogue with that interpretation, but there is another way of seeing it. It's not so much that there is a hierarchical relationship between the world of forms and the world of becoming, because to place the world of forms in a hierarchical relationship would make it part of the world of becoming. Yes. It would put it above. Yeah. Uh, and there's no above or below. It would. It's not in relation to our it's world. It's not in a place. It's yeah. not somewhere. It's not more than or less than this world. It's simply constantly, in one way you could see it, it's constantly expressed by this world. Yes. It asks to be thought by this world. Yeah. And so insofar as it needs to be, it it is in a way that's not an is of time, but an is beyond time, then it's real. And I think that's a reasonable conclusion to reach, you know? Yeah. So why do things go wrong? Why can't the Demiurge successfully create a perfect copy of the world of forms? I don't know why. (laughs) Um, Well, Plato is very cryptic about it, but he's very insistent that Something gets in the way. And this is what you mentioned earlier, the straying cause, or sometimes called the errant cause. No matter what the Demiurge does, because he has to create it, therefore, because it has a beginning, right? Because whatever he creates has a beginning. And the word Genesis, the word Genesis in Greeks means we associate it as beginning, right? The book of Genesis is the book of the beginning. But Genesis means becoming. So because our world had to be created, it necessarily falls short of the qualities we just described to pure number or pure shape. So there's a a force that comes into play and Plato calls it the errant cause. And he also calls it necessity, ananke. And that's basically the force that ensures that whatever the demiurge does, it swerves a bit. It's a little off. He needs to prop it up with something else. And 
He's constantly having to adjust to the creation or make – it's almost like a kind of a Rube Goldberg thing or like yeah. a jerry rig thing. Yes, add duct tape and stuff to try <laughs> to make it keep approximating the world of forms. And that's how this world – uh, and it's many worlds, as you're going to explain. Uh, the, the, the different kind of tiers of this universe are progressively less perfect as you yeah. go down towards our earthly, fleshly, fleshy realm. Which gives us an emanationist system of the sort that we have described in most detail, I think, in our episode on Federico Campania's technique and magic. But it gives us an emanationist cosmos in which there is a kind of a, a top level Mm-hmm. Um, the fixed stars. Yeah. yeah, that emanates to the next level down and uh, it transcends and includes the next level down and then the next level down transcends and includes the next level that emanates from it and so on. And we end up at the end of a, I mean, if we're thinking of the emanation system of Kabbalah, then you know we end up down at uh, Malkut down here on Earth the 10th Sapphira of the Tree of Life. But in Timaeus, I think there's only three. Yeah. There's right? The, yes. And the Demiurge creates the first one, which is... Well, well, he doesn't create the first one. The first one is forms, and it's like, that's uncreated. No, the first one that we can see is perceptible. So it's it's an yeah. imitation of the forms. Yeah, the yeah, first yeah. one that he creates is what we call, what we perceive to be the fixed stars. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the stars that don't seem to move, right? When you're right. an ancient Greek. Well, they move, but they move regularly and they always move together. Right. And then in front of those fixed stars, you have a second layer, layer but that's, that's actually seven worlds, yeah. right? Those right. are the wandering stars or the planets. Yeah. And, this, and these are not planets really in the way we understand those, but the way the ancients understood the planets is canonically seven, and they include the moon, the sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Those are the planets. And, yeah. the, and as uh, we found out yesterday, it was that you, yeah, the planeta, right? The, the Greek word planet meant wanderer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we get the word planet. It means the wanderer. Why are they wanderers? Because they move erratically. They don't move in the same way. They have different, and they, they appear They don't move in different, the same way as the stars and, do. And No, they don't. And they don't move the same way as each other yeah, does. Yeah, that's like, right. They move differently, and they don't follow as predictable a pattern as the fixed stars. They do follow a pattern, which yeah. is perceptible to you know astronomers but now keep in mind that the fixed stars however much they represent a supernal realm a realm above our own it's still not the world of forms because because you can can see them yeah you can see them yeah 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 so they are an emanation from that top level that's completely abstract and ultimately very mysterious the fixed stars according to plato are pure fire and they are the gods but these are not the gods, the Olympian gods. Those are godlings in Plato's system. Yeah. They are these... Small fry. Yeah, these are these archon-like gods that end up doing a lot of the work. The, 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 the Demiurge starts delegating work to them. Yes. Yeah, and to the gods that... Yeah, but the gods we know. Well, we know where, you know, for the wandering stars are... Some of them are Olympian gods, right? I, mm. I'm not sure how Plato mapped the Olympians onto the cosmos, so I'm not going to get into that. Right. But the point is that these are divine entities. Uh, they're not simply stars. They're divine entities, and they become involved in the process of creating the world. One thing I want... I, I want this is one thing I want to say, because I think this is where Plato is doing philosophy, 
but philosophy not in the sense, like in the way that Phil was describing earlier, not philosophy in the sense that we know. Philosophy is a kind of esoteric practice, but an esoteric practice that we can distinguish from what Homer or Hesiod were doing before Plato. So at one point in the dialogue, Plato's talking about the world and the different qualities we described it, like what is heat, what is cold. At one point, he's talking about what is above and below. And he says, well, there's no such thing as above and below. Hmm. He says the reason for that is that the earth is at the very center of this perfectly spherical universe. Therefore, if you're at the center of a sphere, there's no above and below. This is a thought he gets from Anaximander, one of the first philosophers who lived um, right after Thales. And Anaximander was the first philosopher to develop a theory of the earth that modeled a completely new way of thinking about cosmogony. So before Anaximander, you had stories about how this or that God did this or that. And the stories of creation always had to do with a kind of agon between gods. And suddenly one God would become the Basilius or the supreme God. And that God would impose his will upon things and impose order on things. But with Anaximander, uh, who places the earth at the center of a sphere, the earth for Anaximander was a cylinder. He says, the earth just hovers at the center of a perfect sphere. Whereas even for his predecessor, Thales, the earth had to float upon water, mm -hmm. like another thing. So you see how Thales is still operating in a world of becoming. He's like, there's somewhere, there's like a lot of water and this entire planet is simply floating in this water. And Aximander says, no, it's simply hovering at the middle of a sphere. And so the obvious question is, well, why doesn't it fall to the bottom of the sphere? And he says, well, because it's perfectly equidistant from each point in the sphere, therefore it has no more reason to fall than it does to go up. It's simply hovering in the perfect center of the sphere. And so what Anaximander is doing is he's creating mathematical space. And I wanted to read a quick quote from uh, Jean-Pierre Vernon's book, or The Origins of Greek Thought, which is a wonderful little book. It was published originally in 1962. Vernon writes, with one stroke, Anaximander obliterated the mythic, he's being a little dramatic, okay, uh, because he's French and he's, he's <laughs> yeah. with, one, with one stroke, Anaximander obliterated the mythic image of a layered world where the absolute opposition of high and low marked the cosmic levels that differentiated the divine powers. He goes on, its geometrical structure gave the cosmos a kind of organization that was contrary to the one ascribed to it by myth. No longer was any element or portion of the world to be privileged at the expense of the rest. No longer was any physical power to be in the dominant position of a basilius, a king, exercising his dynastia or dynasty on all things. Supremacy belonged exclusively to the law of equilibrium and continuous reciprocity. Now, so in other words, Anaximander creates the kind of geometrical space in which mm. now we can think of the universe. That makes it different from myth, even though philosophers will keep on speaking the language of myth for a long time, they will do it in this new spirit. What's interesting to me is that this is not at the time a dry, boring, scientific approach to things, but rather a magical, esoteric approach yes. to things. It's that other form of knowledge, as opposed to the reception of the ancient wisdom. Yeah. It's like, no, we can uncover these principles, we can apply them, and we can know things about the world based on these principles, mm -hmm. these signals, these videodrome signals. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's good, that's good. Yeah. You know, another thing that might set our esotericism proximity alert off 
is the nature of delegation in the progressive unfoldment of mm. this universe. So, so far we've talked about two realms within the universe, the forms, which are purely abstract and not perceptible in, in and of themselves or in and of itself. And then, you know, the fixed stars, that sort of supernal realm, which is not our world. It's not the earth. It's not down here. That's a macrocosm that we are to tune our microcosm yeah. to. It's a moving image of eternity. A moving image of eternity. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. But then there's the third thing, which is us, this world. Yeah. And the demiurge at this point actually hands the job of creation over to intermediaries. Yeah. These gods of the fixed stars, I or guess. The or the wandering or the stars. Wandering it's stars. not quite clear. I, I don't have to read it again. Yeah. But to gods. He hands yeah. over to his gods. He creates a bunch of gods. Yeah. And then those gods have the job of creating us. And, you know, as we all know, if you want a job done right, you got to do, do it, it yourself. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, we have more transmission loss. We have more yeah. grit getting into the system. And so this world is a copy of the previous world that was a copy of the previous world. And I'm using previous in a philosophically indispensable yeah. way, but you know what I mean. It's the third of a chain of emanations, but it's more irrational. There's more, there's more garbage in it. Yeah. There's more of that necessity and necessity. More duct tape. Yeah, more duct tape. Uh, it's, it's, now it's definitely being held together with like chewing gum and bailing yeah, wire. Yeah. Um, still ingeniously though. Ingenious, but, <laughs> but still kind of a Rube Goldberg system. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting what might set off our esotericism proximity alert is that the creation through a chain of intermediaries is also like a signature esoteric thought. Yeah. The idea that the esoteric operator, the magus or magician, is able to ascend levels, is able to attain unto godhood, or however you want to put it, by um, following the chain of emanations backwards or upwards, all of these words are kind of inadequate, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is like, you don't just immediately get to God. You need to work your way up through hierarchies of angels and archangels and or, um, or demons, if, yeah. if, depending on which grimoire you're working from. But the point is that you're working with intermediaries. Yeah. Just as co the cosmos itself is structured through a series of intermediaries from an originary point to where we are, and we are always in the like the lowest position. Likewise, the operator, the magus, is operating on the cosmos through intermediaries. Yeah. And here we have a class of intermediaries, these gods that the demiurge has appointed for the creation of the humans and the human world. Also of interest to uh, listeners of the show or fans of the esoteric uh, will be the obvious connection here with Gnosticism, right? Yes. The Gnostics who develop cosmologies that are very similar to what Plato's supposing here. Uh, if you think about a, a Gnostic system like that of the Sethians, well, they essentially adopt the Timaeus, but they say the Demiurge wasn't really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's all they have to change is that one. They, they just differ with Plato on that. And all of a sudden, well, the Demiurge was simply a fool to try to 
mimic the world of forms. He created yeah. this horrible world. And now it's our job. We have to, we have no choice but to try to claw our way back up through the celestial spheres to get back to the world yes. of forms, which this demiurge and his prison guard archons are trying to stop us from attaining. I mean, it's been theorized that Gnosticism was the result of a kind of collision of the Greek tradition with the uh, the Jewish tradition at the time. The idea of Yahweh and then this idea of the Demiurge. And suddenly it's like, well, yeah, maybe this Yahweh guy's not all that great, but maybe there's a God beyond all that. Um, the good beyond being, as Plato describes him in, uh, or it, in uh, the Republic. So um, again, the incalculable influence of this system There's one gift that Plato bequeathed to us through this dialogue. It has to be D&D dice. <laughs> yes. Now, this is where he things get hard, really... He was a hardcore gamer. Yeah, as we can Plato. see in this, because he says that the entire universe... This is another example of philosophical thinking distinguishing itself from the more mythical style thinking of Plato's predecessors. So Empedocles, who is a predecessor of Plato's, held that the world was composed of these four elements. Now, other pre-Socratic philosophers made one element the main one, like Heraclitus privileged fire, Thales privileged water. Empedocles said, no, there are these four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. And Plato says, that's true. We can definitely see this. And as Lionel Snell argues in his book, um, Sasatvami, the theory of the four elements is actually, it's a theory with legs. You can use it and... That's going to be hard. <laughs> Just you can use it. You can use it in in many ways. Uh, to this day, it uh, and as Meredith pointed out when we did the seminar at, at IU, the four states of matter are essentially the theory of the elements translated into the language of modern uh, chemistry. But Plato says we can't stop at fire, water, earth, and air. Why? Because fire can become air, can become fire. The, the elements become one another. They can, they're cyclically connected. Therefore, and we can see this. We, we can see them. Therefore, they're perceptible. What is it that we can't perceive that might make fire fiery or make water watery? And what he says is that he, he essentially proposed a kind of atomism. Uh, he says that what we call the elements are configurations of these tiny corpuscles, particles, these tiny, tiny atom-like structures that have different shapes. And when you have enough of one shape coming together, you'll get one of the elements. And the shapes are the famous platonic solid. Um, so the tetrahedron, which is the four-sided die in a D&D &D set, the pyramid shape, 
that's fire. Why? Because it's got the sharpest angles. It's pointy. And so when you see fire, you're seeing a huge mass of these tiny little pointy pyramids. And that's why fire can disintegrate things. It can yeah. break things apart because yeah. it gets in between the, the it solids. It wedges into stuff yeah. and tears things apart. Exactly. Yeah. Water is obviously the one that rolls the most. And though, so water is the icosahedron, which is the 20-sided solid. And then uh, air is the octahedron, which is the eight-sided die. And then, uh, of course, matter or earth is the cube, uh, which is the steadiest and hardest to break because it's so... And there's so, a few other rules as to what makes a platonic solid. It's like there has to be the same number of sides meeting at a point. Mm-hmm. And they're per- basically essentially perfectly symmetrical. Yeah. Whereas um, if you have a set of D&D dice, there's a die in there that's a complete imposter. That's the 10-sided die. What you should be doing is using your 20-sided die and just discounting the tens digit uh, and using that as your 10-sider because the 10-sided die is a fraud that was created by TSR in the late 70s because people had trouble reading the 20-sider as a 10-sider and it is not a platonic solid. It is an abomination. <laughs> and as uh, Joe Bittman, the author of the Book of Antithesis says, he says, you must get rid of the imposter D10. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> but I just love this as an image of, so again, the, the universe is- And then is, there's it, the dodecahedron. The dodecahedron, the 12 sider, sorry, yeah, which is the shape of the entire thing because it's yeah. the closest- so for some reason, Plato thinks it approximates the sphere. I think it's because it has 12 sides. So the 12 sides, of, the 12 signs of the zodiac. Oh, it has 12 that makes sense. Yeah. 12-ness. So the 12 sider is the whole thing. You know, helpfully, Aristotle says there must be a fifth element in his own philosophy. He calls it ether. And so later commentators said, well, obviously the dodecahedron is the element of ether. Mm. Um, all this to say that I just find this to be a brilliant way of, I mean, scientifically not the case. But could have been the case, makes perfect sense. When you start reading his examples of how water behaves and earth behaves, it makes perfect sense. But yeah. it's, it's a world that where the appearances of things have to be trusted. You were saying that really brilliantly during your seminar. The world of this that he's describing is a world where qualities that we think are just purely subjective are seen as objective. And therefore... It's by trusting the way yeah, the world yeah, appears yeah. to us that we get to this level. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's very different from modern thinking. Well, you know, something I was saying is like, you know, how is this different from just thinking in terms of atoms? Right. And this actually leads us to another observation of like how esoteric thought, not just esoteric thought, also like, you know, exoteric religious thinking, but certainly something that might differentiate esoteric thinking from scientific thinking that it might otherwise resemble is that, I mean, to put it in more technical terms, it preserves a place for so-called secondary qualities and makes them primary. I might say more impressionistically that it is a picture of matter, of, of the material world in which the human being is necessarily implicated. Right. A contemporary scientific worldview that you find expressed in any number of people who aren't scientific at all. They're not scientists, but they're just thinking in the ways that scientific habits of mind have inculcated in us. We think of the universe as like kind of a big warehouse, a container that contains all different kinds of stuff, including human beings. But the human beings could, 
be swapped out of the warehouse with some other kind of thing. There's nothing necessary about the contents of a warehouse that makes the warehouse the warehouse. Mm. We're like contingently present in the order of the universe, but we don't have to be. And then from that point of view, our relationship to the universe is decidedly tenuous. And we find ourselves often talking about how Uh, Like, yeah, you know, you hear this kind of rhetoric all the time. We're just like meat robots on a cold rock spinning idly through a void. Yeah, or or there's nothing that that makes human perception or cognition more special than that of a... An ant or a, a caterpillar. Right. Like, we just have a completely contingent view of the world. Yes. Yeah. Which... From from a very important point of view is absolutely true. You know, from an ant's perspective, my chair is like a skyscraper. And from my perspective, it's a chair. Yeah. Obviously, mm. perception is conditioned by the kind of being you are in this universe. But Plato's theory of solids, uh, his theory of like how elements kind of work in its marrow assumes that there's a connection between human perception and the way things actually are. So, you know, pointiness is not exactly what a, like a scientist would think of as a quality of matter. Mm. Pointiness is like something we think, you know, if somebody leaves their D4 die lying around and then you step on it in the middle of the night and it hurts, yeah. you say, oh, fuck. That's pointy. Or if you're, if pointy. you're, or if you're a tiny dust mite, uh, well, the the corners of the D4 are quite rounded. You know, <laughs> yes, like they're very not true. pointy. It's, it's relative. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's relative. Yeah. And so we think, well, pointiness is not a property of things in themselves, just a property of things as human beings experience them. But to think of these particles, corpuscles of the elements as having such qualities establishes a place at the heart of the universe for human perception. And it would not have occurred to Plato in this dialogue to imagine the kind of severance of the human with the cosmos. How could it? The human being is the unfoldment of the cosmos. We are a late product of it and a highly imperfect product of it. And our imperfections give us our philosophical task, which is to bring ourselves in alignment with the higher and more perfect worlds. But for that task even to make sense, for that even to exist as a thing that human beings might do, it has to be a universe in which we are already intimately embedded. Yeah. I think that Plato would have Plato would have agreed that to an ant, a chair is not a chair, but rather a giant gigantic tower or whatever it is. <laughs> but he would have said there's something different about human cognition. What's different about the human is that, first of all, the gods created humans in this story before they created plants or animals. Essentially, the gods wanted to do what the demiurge had done. So they created a sphere, that's our head. But then the sphere wouldn't work on its own because it's in the middle of this all these elements now. So it needs to be able to it, move it around. It needs to move around. It can't, it can, so it needs legs. Oh, and it needs a digestion because it needs to feed off the elements around. So all of a sudden the sphere becomes this really kind of complicated machine that we call the body. But the body is designed in such a way as to encourage us to remember or to come to know our connection with the absolute. So the reason why the intestines are long and coiled is so that we're not eating all the time, so that we can get full of food. And that way we'll stop eating because otherwise our instincts would just dictate that we keep eating all the time. So we needed long intestines. That's why the gods made the intestines long. The gods... uh, 
distance our heads from our bodies. I can't remember why. With the neck for other ethical oh, reasons. Yeah, yeah, because because the the, the body, the belly, yeah. is a seat of like unreasonable passions. Right. And uh, we need like a buffer. Yeah, exactly. Between the head and all of that mess. So even our perfection. Our imperfections were put in in light of the perfection. Yes. In order to help us achieve the perfection. And in the end, we are told that animals are basically reincarnated humans. So land animals are humans that didn't um, follow virtue, uh, the ways of virtue, and didn't develop themselves sufficiently. And fish are just the stupidest humans, he says. <laughs> and it's true that the fish have the faces of stupid humans. So again, trusting the appearances of the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting that in the constitution of the human, there's this idea of like this interplay of these two kinds of things that we find in the cosmos, reason and necessity. And right. necessity makes it sound like something logical, but actually, no, it's the opposite. Chaos, yeah. Necessity is like Murphy's Law. It's, it's chance. Yeah. It's things going wrong that despite your best efforts, you know, shit is still going to go wrong or things are still going to thwart your will or thwart reason or injustice, like how things should be. There's always going to be stuff that doesn't obey that. Mm -hmm. And... In Plato, there's no sort of moves you're making like with theodicy where like somehow the irrational or bad part of creation is necessary for the greater whole. It all makes sense in the end and what's evil is actually good somehow. No, what's chaotic and uh, chancy and unreasonable and just and therefore from Plato's point of view, bad stays that way. Yeah. There's no way to take that out of the equation. And this is where I think we find the weird in Timaeus. Mm. And that's, that comes with the idea of the errant cause. Yeah. And the errant cause or strain cause, it's called in this translation. It's a force in the world that makes sure that everything will, it's like what G.K. Chesterton says, this silent swerving of things from their center. You know, it's, it's mm. everywhere. It's the rift. It's the shard of chaos in all things that will ensure that becoming keeps becoming, that things never achieve stasis. And I love that Plato just leaves this in. Many of Plato's successors or admirers or the Platonists would try to ignore it or assimilate it to an idea, a supernal idea of order, but Plato just allows chaos to exist. In other words, Plato's cosmos, even for the Demiurge, because the Demiurge doesn't seem to enjoy the errant cause. In fact, we're told at one part that he had a really hard time mixing the same and the different. Yeah, like the different did not want to mix with the same. We're told. <laughs> and so he's like, Argh! and even to him, this shard of chaos is irreducible, unassimilable. It's simply there. It's just the weird in all things. Yeah. Now this leads me to something, a passage that I wanted to talk about. It's a passage on divination. Right. And this is in 71E and uh, going into 72. And these are these uniform numbers. These aren't page numbers. These are these uniform numbers that appear in all editions of Plato. So divination is, it's a system of knowledge that pertains to the necessary, which is to say to that chaotic. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Even chaos is amenable to a kind of knowing, but because it pertains to the necessary, it's a somewhat degenerated kind of knowing. But I find his description of divination really interesting because it shows the way that even this chaos can be brought under a kind of rational control that 
you know, as with human beings where we are partly reasonable and partly chaotic creatures, nevertheless, in the very constitution of the body, we may end up with parts of the body that do the job of reason within the domain of unreason. Yeah, like the liver. Hence the liver. And we talked a a bit about that in our Videodrome uh, conversation last night. This is 71E. The claim that God gave divination as a gift to human folly has good support. I love that. Divination is a gift to human folly. (laughs) No, it's so ambiguous, though. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Um, While he is in his right mind, no one engages in divination. However divinely inspired and true it may be, but only when his power of understanding is bound in sleep or by sickness, or when some sort of possession works a change in him. I have to say, can I just pause and say that that is the case for me. When things are going well, I don't use divination. Yeah. When I'm feeling like I know where I'm going, even though I'm getting in, maybe I'm undertaking some chancy endeavor. Yeah. I still don't feel the need. It's when I'm feeling unease. Yes. Disease, <laughs> unease is yeah. when I start to divine. So yeah. I don't think it's wrong there. No, I think that's quite he said, true. He even says, however true it may be. Yeah. He acknowledges it's not because it's not true that it's folly. It's not because it's superstitious. It's just that a person in their right mind doesn't need to divine. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think is wrong. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah. And I also think there's the other implication, which is like, if you're a truly sensible and mentally healthy individual, you have no need to mess around with divination. So you could imagine some kind of platonic sage who has graduated from the need of such things. Yeah. However, we are not platonic sages. And so divination, yeah, divination is the best you can do in this fallen, unreasonable condition. Yes. That seems to be what he's saying. Yeah. And when he is talking about, you know, the diviner's power of understanding bound in sleep or by sickness, this is really interesting because he's talking about how like in the actual state of receiving knowledge from the realm of the necessary, you are necessarily yourself in a state of disorder. Yeah. Sickness or sleep or madness or possession. And it used to confuse me why, why we would call a deck of cards or a copy of the I Ching, an oracle. No, isn't an oracle like somebody wearing a robe who like chants things? But actually, an oracle is a tool, is a whether it's a human tool, tool of the god, a mouthpiece of the god, a human being being ridden by a loa, right. or whether we're talking about a deck of cards that likewise is like it's a piece of brute matter. It's not a, a reasoning organism. It's a piece of brute matter that somehow takes the impress of the necessary, of unreason. Yeah. In this respect, a deck of cards or a human being have this in common. The divination system, the cybernetic system that is a divinatory reading involves an oracle, whether a human oracle or an inanimate object that you're using as an oracle. But either way, the oracle is the part of that system given over to the necessary, to unreason. Unreason, yes. And then, on the other hand, it takes a man who has his wits about him to recall and ponder the pronouncements produced by the state of divination or possession, whether in sleep or while awake. It takes such a man to thoroughly analyze any and all visions that are seen, to determine how and for whom they signify some future, past or present good or evil. But as long as the fit remains on him, the man is incompetent to render judgment on his own visions and voices. As the ancient proverb well puts it, only a man of sound mind may know himself and conduct his own affairs. 
This is the reason why it is customary practice to appoint interpreters to render judgment on an inspired divination. These persons are called diviners by some who are entirely ignorant of the fact that they are expositors of utterances or visions communicated through riddles. Instead of diviners, the correct thing to call them is interpreters of things divined. So he's making a very deliberate point that divination is a kind of system. I said cybernetic system, perhaps speaking loosely, but perhaps just to evoke in your mind a system of interdependent parts that are necessary for the result, a mm -hmm. divination. But he's dividing this system into its irrational and rational parts, and the rational part has the mastery over the irrational part. The diviner is a person of wisdom who is able to make sense of the unmeaning fragments dredged up from unreason. But nevertheless, it preserves a perfectly kind of enclosed, sort of protected space for unreason. Yeah. Unreason isn't redeemed. It doesn't go anywhere. It's necessary for the system, but the system doesn't enact a change upon it. It just is. Yeah, exactly. And so we might say that for Plato, the visions that one has in like a, a fever dream or in a, a trance or... Um, having ingested whatever it is that they took at the mysteries of Eleusis, that stuff is a kind of madness. He's not saying that it's not, but he's saying that it is amenable to interpretation, that mm. it can be read. And that maybe he does say elsewhere in other dialogues that the gods speak to us through these symbols and riddles. And so there is a kind of order. But the thing is that it's hard to locate where this, and this is what makes it so weird. I'm listening to you. I'm like, yeah, but if you think about the chaos, the chaos of the receptacle. So we use the chaos in two different contexts in this conversation. First of all, we used it to describe the receptacle. So basically the elements before the demiurge ordered them, the state of total disorder at the beginning. That was chaotic. But it was a chaos of particles that were perfect platonic solids. Mm. So there was order in that chaos. And then we talked about chaos in the sense of how things swerve and necessity always comes into ensure that becoming never attains to being, that things, things keep moving, so things keep being decentered, right? Maybe what he's saying with the divination piece is that, wanted or not, the visions expressed through divination are ultimately made up of these tiny platonic solids. So they mm. are, they have their sense in them deep down. They are as disordered as the world was before yeah. the Demiurge acted. So in a sense, what you're seeing in a dream or in a tarot reading, is essentially the primordial chaos at the beginning. But that primordial chaos held all the potential, mm. right? He even says that in that primordial chaos, you might've had universes forming by chance. So all that potential was in the primordial chaos. So what are we doing in divination? Are we reaching back into that primordial chaos and sensing pure potential? That would align with how we've described divination in our show, is that divination allows you to touch the realm of the possible so that you can see how things can turn, yeah. how things can become. So I think there's a solid theory of divination here that um, Plato's suggesting. He's always very cryptic when it comes to these topics, right? Yeah. It's never quite clear what he's talking about.
I guess in closing, I would just like to go back to what you were saying at the beginning, Yeah. right? Which is that what we're being shown here is a, a prodigious act of creation in the Timaeus. It's this wonderful performance. That's how I see it. There's something very musical to me about this. Yes, uh, you know, I we agree. talked about we didn't talk much about music and hearing, but there is a place for harmony and music in this. Obviously, Pythag Pythagoras was big on sound and the way sound modeled for us the order of the spheres and all that. So, to me, the Timaeus is a performance. It's literally a kind of work of speculative fiction, but not fiction relegated to the realm of the unreal as we tend to see it, but fiction restored to its realm of myth-making. Yes. Notwithstanding how the method here is different from the mythical method yes, of history. that's right. Uh, it still remains of speculative activity. And what I find so inspiring about Plato in general is his incredible creativity, his shameless creation of new concepts just to serve a temporary purpose, like the errant cause. Oh, I'll make this up now and then I'll move on to something else. I love his pragmatism. He's just trying to build something that works and he will engage in acts of feats of wild creative imagination in order to make things work. Such is his trust in the human ability to know the real. Hmm. And I find that super uh, beautiful and inspiring. I just love, you know, there's people you feel like you know when you read them. It's rarely, they're, they're rarely ancient Greeks, these people, but with Plato, I feel, he feels like a friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.